Welcome back, people of Earth, to What's Good Radio. I'm, as always, your host, Chris Pennant, also known as Jake Stanley, also known as your favorite game show winner's favorite game show winner. And uh, my guest today is one of the founders of Secret Base, a group of people who look for the stories beyond the clockwork orange type of indoctrination of stats, transactions, and sound bites dropped from the television heavens on us every minute. He's a fan of that longest of suffering of teams in the NBA, the New York Knicks. And according to some really heartfelt tributes that I found on the uh, posting and toasting fan site from SB Nation, one of the best editors a writer has ever had. So please welcome to the show, Velvet Fog Jr., Seth Rosenthal. Seth, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That was the best intro I have ever received. I was worried that I didn't bring any AKAs, but I feel like you took care of it. I know with being is like, especially New York, with the way Jesus and Mero has changed things, my guy <laughs> got me on him. And he started doing that on the, on like the old iteration of this podcast. And I just kind of fell into it. So you're <laughs> fine though. So I, I called you the Velvet Fog Jr. because it's kind of that wrestling tradition. If you're, mm-hmm. you're in the Lucha Libre, you don't replace the previous um, Mascarado. You're like the second or the junior. And I say mm-hmm. Velvet Fog Jr. because I think you're one of the most like comforting and and there's there's something about the voice that you have on on the videos that you do it's like yeah i'm interested in this too now even the stuff i was already interested in i want to know the deeper story so in, in case you need to come back to anybody with that it's like yeah i'm the velvet fog junior now i'm the new mel torme you've got that i'm gonna file that one away that's extremely reassuring because mostly what i get is oh you sound like bill simmons which just hurts <laughs> No, nobody wants to sound like Bill Simmons. Anymore. No, I, I don't. Do you have any 90210 or Melrose Place references in the back? I got nothing. I am never talking about Teen Wolf. But yeah, being compared to Bill Simmons voice wise is enough to make you start chain smoking just to like change your voice. Right. <laughs> All right. So I want to get into where you where you came from, because I think everybody's origin story, especially with sports writing, is important because I've discovered that even though I went to school for journalism, not everybody who became a sports writer or a sports media personality started out that way. And just the intro of the secret base, just looking back, there, that wasn't the case for, for everybody who's, who's on and telling such amazing stories. So going back to like early schooling, what's your origin story? We know you're from New York, but where'd you come from? Yeah, my origin story. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I was a really big New York Knicks fan. I still am. Um, and when I was in high school, uh, so in like the mid 2000s, I, I started to find, you know, the earliest NBA blogs and web communities, courtsidetimes.net um, and knickerblogger.com and, or .net rather, and uh, decided to start my own when I was a senior in high school. So that was the 06, 07 season. Um, and around that time, SB Nation was a really nascent amateur sort of non-corporate sports blogging outfit it was a bunch of loosely linked um fan run team blogs and they had a full i think a full roster of mlb blogs by that point but only a handful of nba um and they didn't have a knicks blog and i was doing my little thing on blogspot as a 17 18 year old and I think because I comment on, commented on some of their sites, someone figured out that I had my own spot and they said, hey, uh, child, <laughs> do you want to come start, come found our New York Knicks blog? And so in March of two, 
2007 or 2007, um, I founded Posting and Toasting, which is still SB Nation's Nick's blog. And in the intervening years, um, I went to college. While I was in college, I majored in psychology. I was en route to go to grad school for neuroscience, but um, I had also been doing this Nick's blog and, um, you know, really put in the work. I was skipping parties and missing opportunities and, you know, not studying abroad and all this stuff because I really wanted to keep doing my Nick's blog. Um, the Nick's actually had held training camp by a complete coincidence at the tiny little liberal art, liberal, liberal art school in upstate New York that I attended. And I managed to weasel my way into covering that, got to do some actual reporting. Um, and my, you know, my, my blogging got some attention. It got me some opportunities. I was actually making little bits of money to write here and there. By the time I graduated college, I was sort of pinch hitting at New York magazine when they had a sports, uh, sports writing vertical. Um, I was, you know, pitching in a bit more at SB nation, which was starting to develop into a more, um, real company with a real, you know, flagship website and all that. And so by the time I graduated college in 2011, I figured, you know, I'm already making a little bit of money. Maybe I should do this as my career and not go to grad school and not go try to get a PhD or whatever. Um, and I would say for the first couple years out of college, that proved to me to be a tremendous mistake. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was working just ungodly hours. I was making very little money. I got laid off in New York Magazine. It was bad. And by 2013, I was living in Brooklyn, um, didn't have a full-time job in sports writing and was just about ready to go find um, a real job and just figure out what my career was actually going to be. And SB Nation, which had since morphed into you know, a real thing with full-time jobs, offered me a gig running social media, um, like basically days before I was ready to just hang it up entirely. Yeah. And I've been working full time for SB Nation ever since. I've taken a lot of different jobs. Um, and now obviously I'm doing this video thing for Secret Base for the last couple of years. Um, and I'm, I've done some jobs I really didn't like. I've done some jobs that I don't think particularly fit my skill set. but I'm very fortunate, very happy to say that through minimal, you know, I didn't earn it, but I've managed to find a job that uh, I really like that is really rewarding working with really good people. And I feel really, really lucky and happy about that. And yeah, I, you know, my, my background is that I just decided to pick up writing. I never, no one ever taught me to do it. And that's the wild thing, I think. Um, again, I've, I've run into people who have that same experience. And I came up, I, I hated writing only because my mom was very uh, finding Forrester about it. <laughs> she she wrote when she was younger. She she placed a really heavy emphasis on it, um, and not not in a, in a in a bad way. She just wanted my writing to be good. So I would I was I wrote some story for young authors in second grade, and there was some terrible idea because I'd been playing a Super Mario Game Boy game, mm -hmm. and so I basically wrote fan fiction about Mario <laughs> Brothers, and she came back. To a seven-year-old is like what are you telling me here like the red red pen on the paper like where is this going 
what's the deeper meaning behind this? And I'm like, I have no idea. I just need to turn this in. So it, it surprises me when I run into people who not only are invested in writing, but have gotten so good at it, who didn't start out that way. Did, did anything on, on your psychology degree and what you were studying there, did that kind of inform your, your writing? Eh, maybe. I mean, I think practicing science, understanding statistics, frankly, uh, might be the thing that, you know, studying stats in high school and then really working with probability and statistical analysis as a, an, you know, amateur scientist at the undergraduate level, I think helps one understand the entire world. I really think everyone should know basic stats. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. But other than that, I mean, it's, it was another version of writing. And I think that the most important thing I've done as someone who was never trained in journalism, never trained in writing in any way, is that I have read very broadly and I have written fairly broadly. Um, you know, when I have edited people, my advice has always been, do not sports write. The worst thing you can do if you want to be a sports writer is to only ingest sports writing because we have, we are among the worst in any industry, you know, in any writing industry in terms of relying on the same jargon, the same phrase, yeah. the same cliches. And I think the really the only good sports writing, the only effective and interesting sports writing is stuff that's coming from someone who has broken out of that box. And so, yeah, I think having spun my wheels and in writing up experiments and things like that is one of several things that I did that helped me from feeling constrained and from you know, developing basically the same toolkit that everyone else trying to write about sports has. That's really true. I think it's really the tough thing now that statistics have become so central to sports, not just in terms of the articles, but sports, um, fantasy sports and sports mm -hmm. betting. I, I want to get your thoughts on that later, but you were talking about the jobs that you had that you didn't like, and I think that's everybody's and everybody's origin story, not even just with this. I, I worked an overnight job at Caterpillar that was just putting away like big screws for a couple Ooh. of years. So what's the, what's one of the jobs that you had that you really just like, I, I'm so glad I'm, I'm not doing that and I made it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of classify my jobs into the things that I did because I needed money. Like I worked several summers at a pool supply store in suburban New Jersey Mm -hmm. um, selling, you know, O-rings and pumps and gigantic boxes, diatomaceous earth to rich people with pools. And that was miserable. <laughs> and then there's the stuff I did because I, you know, I thought I could have a career in sports writing, which at, at SB Nation, I, you know, I was the person that was um, writing, they called it like the social desk, writing 50 word posts and putting stuff on Facebook and making 90 second long square videos. And it was really quick turn work. Um, you know, working 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. shifts. And there was not a ton of value, especially in that, that era. I'm talking like six years ago right now. I, I'm speaking about it like it's forever ago, but it's fairly recent. But it was an era where um, um, digital media was really, really invested in just satisfying Facebook. And that felt like this gold mine. And we all know now that yeah. it was completely fake. It was totally synthetic. <laughs> But yeah, so it was my job to just churn and just get stuff and get clicks and get likes and engagement and all that garbage. And it was 
you know, I, I had my moments where I got to write and really think about things and have fun, but a lot of it in between was just churning. And I learned some skills there and I, but I would never go back to the lifestyle or that, that workload. It was not my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Like, listen, I know it's, it's not coal mining. I, I can fully comprehend and appreciate the relative privilege of complaining about like sitting on my couch until one in the morning watching, you know, a Phoenix Suns game on a Tuesday night, hoping someone like does a cool dunk that I can post on Facebook. Fully get it, but it sucked. I really didn't enjoy it. <laughs> it's not rewarding work. Um, and I, I am not one of those people who subscribes to the belief that everyone should have to go through that. It's the talk about unpaid internships. Yeah. Because this world is littered with them has really ramped up more recently. Um, and there's this one side that's like, I, you know, this is how you cut your teeth and I gained an appreciation of work. And then there's the other side is like, yeah, I've, I've had jobs. I know what work is. I should still get paid for it. And, yes. and, yeah, it's pretty, it seems pretty cut and dried, but. And listen, like I come from a background where, you know, the SB Nation team blogs have evolved quite a bit over the years. Um, but when I was doing it, I was working a lot and late hours and I was, you know, no one was telling me what to do. And I, you know, I'm someone who grew up and when I was in high school and college, I was financially stable enough and had a safety net enough that I could put in that work and, you know, not get paid basically anything for it and be fine. Um, but that's, that's the other problem there is that the, the whole thing with unpaid internships is like, yeah, you put in the work, but like, no one is doing that unless they already don't need the money. And so yeah. if, if the, if the pathway to having a job like mine is to do an unpaid internship, then you are filtering out an entire subset of, you know, talented people just by making the first step unpaid or sparsely paid. And that's bad. That's bad for every industry. And it seems like really intuitive that that is the case. Like you want the most people. So where does this, where, where do you think that comes from where people get this idea of like, well, you have to put in, you have to put in the work or you have to grind and maybe not get anything back for it at all in order to really appreciate this value. It's like, where, where have you seen that? manifest where is that coming from i see two forces at work there at least one of them is you know sort of a top down um it is certainly beneficial for a large company or any employer yeah. to acculturate people with the idea that like yeah it is good it i should be 23 23 years old staying up until four in the morning working for no money um it is beneficial to capital for you to think that way. And so I think that, you know, that sort of like hashtag grind culture has been dispersed from above. And then I think the second part is that people who have gone through it, um, if they are a little short on empathy, and we see this in other, you know, realms of especially money related things, if people have gone through that and are short on empathy are inclined to like I don't know what the opposite of pay it forward is, but sort of like, well, I suffered, so you have to also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a pretty detrimental way to, th you know, we hear that that comes up. I feel like Twitter every other month has a large blow up about this as it relates to student loans. Well, like I still owe money and I had to pay it off. So you should too. It, it seems to me like a cousin of that sentiment. 
that makes the most sense out of any, anything I've heard. And it's, it is weird, but I know I've, I've been involved in it too. It was like, yeah, I had to go through this. So it, it does appreciate when you go through it, but I mean, I covered a minor league team and I had no car. And so, and the bus in Peoria, Illinois didn't run after a certain time. And so I had to ride this bike back and forth to games. And I think the most rewarding moment that I ever had, because it didn't turn into anything, it was mm-hmm. the trouble of graduating in 2010, mm-hmm. right after everybody, there was, there was a moment in school where my journalism teacher shifted her tone <laughs> to maybe you want to um, look for something else. Yeah, like we're, your... we're learning how to install water heaters today. I'm not gonna explain right. why. <laughs> But the most rewarding experience was one of one of the players who was from nowhere near Illinois, who was also was black. He was like, hey, man, where do you go to get a haircut here? And I was like, I can tell you that mm. because I've had the same trouble in finding a place to go. And so I think the commonality of those experiences is, is really what I found with Secret Base to be refreshing. The, the exploration of context and nuance and the story behind the, the plane story, which is team X beat team Y today, and it was 55 degrees. Mm-hmm. That's the coolest part. So where did that all, where, where did you find these like, where did these like-minded people come from? Because getting those people together is, is tricky now. Yeah, and I think if we were starting from scratch in ways that are mostly negative, some positive, we would not have been able to put together the same team. But it happened as many things that SB Nation have um, pretty gradually and organically. Um, a lot of it starts with John Boyce. I mean, John has been around SB Nation as long as I have. And John is, I, I genuinely believe this, John is one of the cleverest people to ever walk the earth and appreciate sports in a way that has opened my mind, opened a lot of people's minds. It's extremely entertaining and funny and just clever. He's just so smart. And I think a lot of us, you know, find commonality with him and, and have watched him work over the years and thought, man, what, you know, what if I could do that? And I was one of several people that a couple of years ago, we were sort of sat down and this, this relates to the Facebook stuff I was talking about. I think after every digital media company's relationship with Facebook fell apart and the sort of wool was put, pulled out from over our eyes and they said, oh, none of, this, none of this is real. Your video numbers with Facebook weren't real. You have not actually yeah. built an audience or made any money. There was a moment where um, John and Ryan Nanny, celebrity hot tub on Twitter, you know, works for, <laughs> runs Banner Society. They were in position to, you know, make some decisions for the entire video outfit. And they saw the opportunity to say, all right, forget Facebook, forget the stuff that we've been doing on YouTube. This is an opportunity to lean into some things we've seen work on our website, things we've seen work for John in particular. Let's make sports stuff that's, um, you know, that tells a story that explains something that's experimental and you know above all else is evergreen is the word we tend to use in the industry that you know if you watch it today uh, the day after it comes out um 
it'll be informative and entertaining, but also hopefully several years from now, you know, it's not, here's what happened last night. It's not trying to catch you up on something. It's not offering a really time locked or specific opinion. Um, it's more of a reference material than a periodical. What if we do that a lot on video on YouTube? And what if we make it sort of long form? I, you know, it, it's basically, it had been working for John. John was the test case for this and none of us are John, but you know, each of us can bring sort of a different sensibility to that same format. And so that was, I think 2018 that John and Ryan sort of came to us with that mission statement. And for me, among several other people, you know, some people were already working for um, our video outfit. Some people were more writers, but uh, for me, the question was, okay, well, social video has sort of ceased to be a thing. Do you want to go back to running the Twitter and Facebook accounts or do you want to try this new sort of form of video that we're going to embark upon? And I, I picked video and, you know, here, here I am a few years <laughs> later. Um, but I, as I've tried to get at like so many things in my career, I sort of just fell sidelong into it and I got really lucky. Um, and people were patient with me and yeah, it's, you know, some people have come and gone. I've, uh, the company has churned around us and some, you know, pretty upsetting things have happened. And I would love for our team to be a, a lot more diverse, a lot larger than it is right now. We are a running a skeleton crew as things stand, but, um, it's a really cool group of people we really get along and we really do share some sensibilities and complement each other really well. And I think, you know, I hope at least that it, that it shows in the product. It does. I think, like I said, that um, I don't want to delve too deeply on the individual things right now, because you brought us some interesting things that I don't want to forego. And we also have limited time, but that Marta untitled was really important because I've, watched sports as much as I can get my hands on or, or I grew up with no cable so I was a radio kid mm -hmm. but I haven't I've had to look in the mirror long and hard with women's sports because I was an asshole in high school and mm -hmm. made the same asshole jokes that people did and now I'm writing WNBA and the hard part with women's soccer is that I just I know that the U.S. women are going to win which sometimes makes it difficult. It was like, man, this is going to be a blowout. Mm -hmm. Do you know, how do I feel about watching this game? And then you have to also unlearn these ideas that are in your head. So I think that was really important, not just because you expect as, as a person who knows something about soccer for Brazilian soccer to be good for Brazilian football to be good, but for this person who won the golden boot and the golden ball in her career, you expect her to have won once and enumerating the reasons why were not as simple as the US women were really good or Japan's women's team was really good at this time or there were injuries on the team. And putting that at the forefront is like, hey, Brazilian culture and the Brazilian soccer federation let this generational talent fall by the wayside. Is this, I don't think even with all the videos and the stories that had come out to that time, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that to be said so plainly. Yeah, and I think that video represents a few forces. One is that SB Nation, I think, 
especially in its soccer heyday when we really had a full um, national global scope soccer full-time writing team. Um, between Kim McCauley and some freelancers, we had some people who were really on top of women's soccer. And so around, I can't remember which World Cup it was, um, I think maybe the last two Women's World Cup, Women's World Cups, um, there was really good stuff written about Marta and about Brazil. And so, you know, I, I am not a big enough soccer fan to have come to that conclusion to have um, already known that. That's one, and I, I miss those people, but their work stands the test of time. Two mm -hmm. is that, you know, part of Secret Base's mission, and I think the the log line for several of our series, Rewinder and Untitled in particular, is like, yeah, you know the basics of what happened. I could show you three numbers and two highlights and you could get the gist. But I really want to provide the definitive document on why that's the case, on really everything that built up to this, to avoid tokenization, to avoid turning you know, something into a meme, to avoid a highlight being the only reference material for understanding what happened in the past. So that's the second thing, you know, that Untitled is a series that is, yeah, you know this person never won a thing. You know Barkley doesn't have any rings. That's for some reason the only level to which anyone investigates this anymore. Let's really dig into why, because otherwise this is just be, gonna become, you know, the same thing repeated over and over again. And then the third thing is that uh, my boss, Will Bukema, and you know, whoever is above him applying whatever pressures get, uh, get applied <laughs> at the corporate level, have said, you know, we, we need views, we need an audience, let's take some shots, let's do the stuff that we care about, let's do the things that you know, satisfy other communities and bring in new kinds of people and tell stories that aren't going to get told as much. So we don't only have to do NBA and NFL stuff, you know? We, knowing full well that we will get less viewership, less of the raw data that a lot of more cynical digital, you know, media operations are looking for, let's do something about a Brazilian women's soccer player anyway. And so those three things combined to me having the leeway to go back and read all that stuff that my former colleagues had written and to sit down and say, it would be totally insufficient to say, well, you know, she missed with her left foot in this World Cup and her teammate was injured, therefore they lost the World, the World Cup. It is it, to say this is why Marta doesn't have a ring and only talk about what happened on the soccer field would fall so short of telling the story. And so that, yeah, that to me, like, I love all the episodes of Untitled I've done and I feel like they're, they're valuable if you want to understand these really legendary players' career. But one that really inarguably has to incorporate politics and culture and you know a century of history I think is probably I think the most pointed the best use of that format that I came up with so far and it was it was an exciting opportunity to get to do that and I think it like I said I, I don't think a lot of people watched it compared to our, our other things but I got a, a really good response for that I think it brought in people that you know, otherwise might not be watching secret base videos and people appreciated it. And so that, that I, I'm glad that someone sees the value in that because I, it, it was, it felt good to make. And it was, I think, meaningful. It's, it's incredible to read the comments on it. Like I'm, I'm scrolling through it now and I'd read them back when I watched it because it was, I'm, I'm, I'm not subscribed to a lot of things on YouTube 
but this is one that comes up and it's like, okay, hey, check out a new video. And I was like, oh man, this is good. And I'd watched most or all of the untitled and just looking at the view counts. Yeah, it's disparate. It, it's going to be yeah. because I think that's the nature of things right now and they're slowly changing. But the Becky Hammond video and this one, reading the comment sections, which you know ordinarily you're never supposed to do, mm-hmm. is incredible. Um, and even this is just from like looking at people who either either they say, um, who people are just like, I'm not a sports fan, I'm not a women's soccer fan, I'm not a soccer fan, anything like that. I think there's just one of these that just stands out. This dude, Michael Averill, Brazil failed her after she gave her life to them, shaking my head. And this dude just looks like a regular dude who doesn't follow soccer at all. Michael Averill, if you're out there and you listen to the show somehow. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> like if you, if, thank you for getting it. Refute me if you do watch soccer as well, because if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it's incredible seeing people who are just like, yes, this is what happened and she should have been supported. And you hope that they come on and it's like, well, I'm going to try and re-resolve this mistake some way from in myself or for mm-hmm. myself so that it doesn't happen again. And that's that to me is, I feel like I've done my job if, whether it's you know a, a super mainstream high-trafficked sports event or a, a lesser-known star, whatever it might be, whatever video I make, if I feel that people who are fans of that team, who know the history, who have gone through it, and just you know are, are more are more expert on the subject matter than I am, if they feel like oh yeah that really that really did it justice, or like I forgot about this little detail, or like I you know that brought me back. If I get that response and I get, I knew nothing about this going in. I've never watched a sport in my life, but I get it. I see why this matters. Then I feel like I've done my job. Talking about that aspect of it, I commented, I think I, I tweeted Shea Serrano after I read his first book, Basketball and Other Things. And there's a chapter, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I have not. There's a chapter that he does being Shay, about... Um, if players' names were just slightly different mm-hmm. and what would their careers be? And so he does one on John Harden, who <laughs> is the, <laughs> the antithesis of James Harden, who ends up starring in some B action movies <laughs> uh, where it basically revolves around his, his main weapon is this hammer. And <laughs> so he becomes John Harden and then John Harder, and then John Hardest, and he's like, what he names the plot of this, he names the title of this movie, and then the next chapter is, what is the plot of John Harder, John Harder 2? And he goes over this whole thing, he has this whole plot of this movie with screenplay directions interspersed throughout, and I, I tweeted him, and it's like, you know, I'm still laughing, how long did this take you? He's like, this was the easiest chapter of the book by far. It took 30 minutes from start to finish. And it was the most fun thing I've ever written. So in that sense, you know, video production and just producing and writing these has to be difficult, but there's gotta be some where it just all just flows. Is there, has there been any video like that where it's just like, this was the easiest and the most fun thing to make in any of these series by far? Yeah, I mean, easy, there's different flavors of easy because there are some things where I, you know, when I'm writing about Marta, like I'm not a big soccer fan, um, I'm starting from scratch there. And right. 
uh, you know, I am depending on other people to, I'm like, Hey, can you read this over to make sure I didn't call the ball a puck? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm very paranoid about, about showing my, not showing my ass, but just like not, not doing something justice because I don't, I haven't put in the, the years, the hours of just watching every, every kind of, you know, version of this sport. Um, but when I write about the NBA and when I write about stuff, I remember, I am in my wheelhouse and, you know, that doesn't mean I don't do research, but the thing that comes to mind when you talk about that, which is not necessarily the most fun was we did an episode of our series collapse about the Knicks. And like, I did a lot of research. I was reading old newspapers. I was watching games again and I was reading books. I was really going through all this stuff, but like, I knew the shape of that one in the back of my head. I didn't have to look up as much stuff as I usually do. I didn't have to check my work quite as much because I don't need to go, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I think what I write, what we write is to try to recreate the feeling of having sat through that, you know, whatever the sports event might've been. I didn't, I didn't have to recreate the feeling of what going through the Isaiah Thomas years or, you know, the James, yeah. guys, James Dolan scandals felt like I knew what that was like. I didn't have to create that for myself. I could just spill it out onto the page. Um, and so that, that is somehow easy, but not more fun, but um Yes, I do feel particularly comfortable with NBA stuff. And so I can, you know, writing for video is interesting because you have to cover everything you write. So you can't just talk and talk and talk. You have to be able to, you know, have a, have a visual asset to go with whatever you're saying, which acts as a very good editor. It means you can't just ramble. But um, yes, I can spend several pages writing about 90s Knicks basketball without having to, you know, get on Wikipedia or anything like that. Yeah, the stuff that's just always, always in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if have been, having been kids of the 90s and growing up without as much media, I wonder if that's different for, and I haven't really had the chance to talk to anybody who's of that Generation Z who's a sports fan and how much they can remember um, just right off the top of their head and how much is, has, you know, has, they have difficulty with. Because I know that some of my memories of the, the Bulls back then are foggy, mm-hmm. but I remember them very clearly, but it's very few and far between. And I think the Derrick Rose era is completely different in terms of media. Like there was a television everywhere. I was mm-hmm. also 20 some odd, so I could go to a bar where there was always mm-hmm. a sports game on. And it just, I've never had the chance to talk to people about that. And I kind of want to. Yeah. I, I don't know how much of it, for me is era versus my own age versus, you know, what media was like at the time. But part of what, when I was a kid, I think what first got me into the NBA was just rote information. I am a person who likes to memorize lists and likes Mm. to, I like trivia. And so like around the same time I was starting to watch NBA games on TV most of what I was doing was looking at basketball cards. I had the, the 1996 NBA register, the sporting news used to put out just like a, a short bio and statistical breakdown of every NBA player each season. And I just memorized it. And so like, I was the kid at camp when I was six years old, who my counselors, I, would, I was like a party trick. I knew where every NBA player went to college off the top of my head. And it's sort of like the calculator thing where as you start to externalize that information and you know that you don't really need to remember it 
I mean, not that I did before, but like I can, <laughs> I can look that up in a split second. Yeah, there's less incentive to go memorize it. Um, but yeah, I think I have stashed memories from that era um, in part because there's so much emotion on top of them and it's so visceral, but in part because I think, yeah, like you said, there was just a different, you couldn't go figure out where an NBA player went to college or, you know, what they shot from the field last year whenever you wanted. Um, and so maybe there, <laughs> there was just more initiative to go like know that. Yeah. It's as soon as you said road information, I went to my, um, I went to a web page and looked up and I think, have I, are you on Learned League, Seth? Yeah, I sure am. I just, I was like, as soon as you said road information and trivia, I was like, Seth might be on this. Yep. And so, <laughs> I'm that type of dude. <laughs> I, I just got an invite uh, from a friend from a game show I was on. So I have fallen into the, the happy void of, of whatever this is. I, I have so much fun with this. <laughs> nice it's it's a lot of fun it was a good it's been a particularly good pandemic diversion so i should have put that on your intro rundle c garden division two champion yeah <laughs> league 84 <laughs> that not only that um nick's collapse the larry johnson alonzo morning fight. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it came through when you're just sitting there looking at the, the computer like yeah yeah they this is that, that the shake of the head is so relatable because that's what every Bulls fan felt in 2011 and in 2015 when they when LeBron got an extra timeout, which I will go to my grave saying there's no way that they should have given the Heat that timeout. Mm. And, and when you're writing about something that's historic, like even for other NBA teams outside of the Knicks, especially something that predates me, you know, I've been writing a lot about the, the 80s recently for something I'm working on. And if I'm talking about, uh, you know, a young, well, I shouldn't pick someone I've, I remember very well, but like, uh, I don't know. Uh, so Gerald Austin, Henderson. Gerald Henderson is not someone whose game I remember. And so like, I can go look at his basketball reference page and figure out that, oh, he was a good free throw shooter. But if I'm writing about him, I want to give it some flesh and blood. And I want you to actually understand what it was like to watch him as a fan. And so I need to go do some homework there and watch some Gerald Henderson and read stuff that people are writing about him and get a feel for him in a way that no amount of that rote information can provide. Right. And like I said, if I'm doing the Knicks, that's, that's the research that I simply do not need to do. I can tell you what Larry Johnson was like from memory. Um, and you know, that, that is a kind of research that like, it varies considerably depending on the topic that I'm writing. Because uh, it's going to be a really boring script if I don't go figure out what it felt like and not just like, oh, he was second in the league in field goal attempts. Yeah, it's hard to capture that. And as, as much as, as Bill Simmons is one of the, the, the worst people in this, in, this, in this whole field, I think reading his book, he gave me a sense of that, especially in, in, in different sections. I, I tell people don't, you know, don't follow Simmons' example necessarily, but read the book of basketball just for the stories. Even and you just kind of ignore the biases or, or understand that they're there. But being able to kind of capture the person behind the stats is something that he endeavored to do and, and did fairly well. Um, yeah, and and to me, Simmons, I mean, I you know, I think people our age. Bill Simmons sort of turned on a light bulb for a lot of us when it was yeah. the early 2000s. I think that he 
for better and to a great deal for worse, um, wrote from the perspective of a fan and he did it on a very large platform. And he is very much not the type of fan I am now. Um, but he did, like I said, turn on a light bulb that said like, oh, it, you know, it's entertaining. It's, it's interesting and different to read what it's like to watch sports and to use that as a prism, you know, not someone sitting in the press box, but someone who deeply cares about what's happening, that there's value in that also. And yeah. so I have plenty, I could fill an hour with uh, nasty things to say about Bill Simmons, but he, you know, he, he is one of several people, I don't want to put him alone in this category, who did, who, who opened up an opportunity of like, yeah, you can be a fan and still write viably about sports. Yeah, I think um, the start, the, the guys who are the starters now, or the basketball mm -hmm. Jones back then, they were really big on that. And then Dan Devine, who was at Yahoo oh, Sports, yeah. Yeah, there's, and, there you're right. And those are people about whom I have nothing negative to say. Those are, you just named some truly wonderful human beings who were, yeah, like you said, were, didn't have as big platforms in the early 2000s where, you know, like I was, were kind of planting their own flag and trying to stake it out on their own and have obviously done great things since then. But yeah, those are people who had no access at the time, just really deeply loved the sport and figured, you know, realized like, oh, people actually like want to hear me talk about this, want to read what I'm writing uh, from this particular perspective. And that was, a, that was important to people who are slightly younger like I am. And before we go into the last segment of the show, which I think kind of leads into the last segment of the show, like I said, with, with sports being increasingly marketed towards um, fantasy sports and um, you know sports gambling, sports betting, and just the as it's been for so long, these quick hitting stats, mm -hmm. highlights, sound bites. You've kind of created this place for people to get more of a feature feature style look at things, mm -hmm. like a really a deep look. And I know that obviously Secret Base was created because there's a market for that, but. What have you seen from from the people who have, who have interacted on like the comment sections that tells you, yeah, not only is this viable that people want this, but that other the next generation or the the people who are coming up as sports fans are going to want it too. Yeah, I, you know, it was not obvious, and it, I think it took some convincing from us that there would be a market for this, and I don't think we proved it right off the bat. It took took some time to build an audience. But I, I think that, like I said, our, our best work takes snippets of information, highlights, iconic photos, you know, sort of the, the top two sentences of someone's bio of their Wikipedia page and steps back and says, why? And the why is always a few different things. It's this, the actual sitting and watching sports um, which is easy to forget if you're just doing fantasy, if you're just looking at stats that part of, well, no, not part of the whole reason this shit exists is that <laughs> it is fun and satisfying to sit and watch the first quarter through the fourth quarter, the whole thing, not just the last shot, not just the highlights, the whole thing is fun to watch and none of this would exist if that weren't the case. And important and interesting stuff happens 
during the regular season and during the whole game and throughout. You know, that's part of why we exist is like, you no, know, that game winning shot, that wasn't the only thing there. That's not the beginning and end of the story. There's a lot more to this. That's part of it. And the other part of it is that these are human beings. They are laborers. They are members of families. They come from places. They have relationships with one another. And that matters too. And it doesn't matter, you know, it, it even matters just on the watching sports level that, uh, you know, in many cases to best understand why a team collapsed or why someone doesn't have rings or why, you know, this shot won game seven of the finals or whatever it might be, it'll be helpful to actually know something about the person, some of the people who were involved and their relationships and their history and all that. Um, and not in the sort of soft focus narrative building way, still in a pretty straightforward, like, no, you, you know, we just want you to understand why this sports thing happened. Yeah. And it, it would be really short-sighted and narrow-minded to pretend like the real world and the, the bubble of the playing surface that has its own, you know, laws and norms that they don't puncture one another sometimes that they don't overlap at all. Um, and so, you know, we never want to force it, but it's, it's almost always there that there's in between the lines and outside the lines. Um, there's something interesting to talk about. And so what's good radio is as its name says, a place to kind of figure out or, or identify what is good, whether that's morally or just intrinsically or objectively, what you find good about what you do on a daily basis. So I do want to ask, I think, what you have struggled with on the days where it's like, maybe this doesn't matter as much. But then I also want to ask what you find good about it and it keeps you keeps you doing it day after day. And you've said a lot about what that is already, but to crystallize it in a way. Sure. So I, I want to ask that struggle question first, like what is what has gotten to you where it's like, man, I don't know if this is worth it now, not not mm -hmm. necessarily back then, but now. Now and then, uh, I think more then than now, I go through periods where I worry that I'm wasting people's time. I, you know, if people are going to devote some of their hours today, some, some of the hours of their day to, you know, idleness and diversion, as I think everyone deserves to and ought to, then it sucks if you're wasting their time. It sucks if you are just grabbing their attention for your own benefit and offering them nothing in return. And I know I've done that before. Um, and that it's, it's not rewarding if you're the person creating it. And it's obviously not rewarding if you're the person making it. And unfortunately in the industry I work in, there is at certain times and certain places, a great deal of incentive to fool people, to trick them into looking at the thing for as long as is you know, financially useful and then not worrying about them after that point. Um, and I, I work really hard and now I think I I'm in a position where I, you know, on my best days can avoid that. Um, but I have definitely done entire jobs and definitely on, you know, times where I've mailed it in or not really thought hard enough about something or had not my best idea, I've wasted people's time. And if, you know, if I'm in a line of work where I am not making anyone healthier I am not, you know, correcting the ills of the world and re redistributing wealth and making people feel safer. If I am merely offering them something to look at when they are resting, when they are diverting their attention, 
um, what a shame it would be to prey upon them, you know, to prey upon that attention to waste their time. Um, and so that, that's the struggle is to, is to avoid that, but also to avoid the feeling that one is doing that when one's uh, in a funk. Wow. It's, it's hard to, I think it's hard to come to formulate, not a response, but just a, a way to elucidate that. It's, it's tough to elucidate that because I think there's sometimes that I, I've, I've gotten, and I think a lot of writers come as like, is somebody gonna care about this? Like, are they gonna pay attention? But the idea that you might be wasting the people's time who read it is not something I've heard or, or thought about or heard people disclose that much. And so it, it's, that's very introspective is the best way I can think to put about it. You, that's a very critical in a good way of looking in the mirror. So I, I would encourage any writer to think about that too. Because I've never, I don't think I've ever gotten that advice. And, and, and I got, you know, because I, like I said, I have done jobs where day in and day out, I felt like I didn't have the time or the latitude or the incentive to enrich people's lives, to not waste their time. And so, you know, I think in me, I think no one should work for free, but I think in media, a lot of people on, in their early days are going to be filling that kind of role because that's the way this industry is built. And you should be getting paid if you're doing that. But I think you know you've made it, at least in one realm, uh, if you feel like people are getting something out of what you put into it, if you feel like you are adding value in your own way to someone's day. Um, and I think if you can scratch that itch, it's a creative itch and it's a sort of itch of fulfillment, then, you know, pat yourself on the head. You, you, you found something. That's, <laughs> that's a cool job. I think with each passing month, those jobs dry up in media. It's, it's a bad time. So if you've managed to, whether it's a job or you're doing it for fun or a part-time good, whatever it might be, if, if one finds that they are putting in work and they feel confident that the person on the other end of that work is getting something out of it. It doesn't have to be like, you know, money or health. It can just be like, yeah, I get it. Or yeah, I enjoyed that. And I'm glad I spent the last 90 seconds looking at it, whatever it might be, then that's valuable. Cause, and it's not as easy to come by as I think you might think. And is that the good for you? But just the, the, the idea from that the audience is like, this was worth it. Like this was really worth it. Not, not maybe not the whole thing, but is that part of just like what you find objectively good about this? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm not always convinced that my work is objectively good, but I can sleep soundly at night because I have put my head on my pillow and I say, what did I do at work today? And for the last couple of years, I've been able to say, well, I researched and wrote and recorded voiceover and gave notes on something that I cared about, that I was interested to learn, that I found enriching and entertaining and valuable. And I feel like I put my best foot forward in communicating that to someone else and to taking everything that I digested and making sure that the person who spent 10 minutes watching it on YouTube got some version of that you know I had fun with it and someone else will also 
and if they learn something or if they, you know, if I was able to sneak in something moral or political and sort of infect them with, uh, <laughs> with, with a bit of my worldview in the process, then that's great. Um, but I, I am very fortunate that my job duty these days is not to waste people's time. I'm really rewarded because I have a good boss and good teammates um, for making good use of people's time. And I'm really lucky in that regard. And, you know, if I'm doing any good in the world with my work, uh, which is a relative thing, then I, I think it's that. Can't be said any better than that. And I think that's what I strive for too. Um, like I said, man, open, you need to open up those, those books, get more positions in there because we, there's, we, there's so many things. We absolutely do. And I, I mean, that, that is, I think, the one thing that really bothers me is that um, we don't have as many people, we don't have, we don't have the variety of, of, of knowledge bases, of experience, of demographics that would make this team as good as it could be. And I hope that someone outside of our team realizes that sooner rather than later. I know it's it's difficult when you're not you know you're not the one with your hand on the on the decision making um, board or whatever. But it it is difficult. But I will say like this is this is one of many reasons that Vox Media has a union, and uh, being in position to make a fuss and to you know have a organized way to talk to management and things like that. I think is. If you're working in any sort, if you're working in any industry, but if you're working in media, where in recent, in, especially in digital media, and in, in you know the the first era, bosses had the the opportunity to just do whatever they wanted and could shape teams and dismantle them however they saw fit. I think the past few years of working against that have been crucial for the actual editorial product, and so. You know, I am frustrated in some ways, but I feel less um, neutered, less voiceless than I did in prior years. True. And it's, I'm hoping that unions within journalism of, of all kinds are going to be the norm going forward. And we've seen a lot, the Tribune uh, mm -hmm. union, as, as bad as the Tribune is, and if you, if you don't have any view on it, that's a good thing. <laughs> Tribune is very bad. Um, but the Tribune Union and the Sun-Times Union is, is great. The Ringer Union, um, I've been following that, and mm -hmm. the Vox Media Union, too. It's, it's just better. It's better for those people who are working the stories to have a voice on the stories. And, and it, it is better. ultimately better. It is ultimately better for readers, for consumers. It will ultimately lead to a, a, a better, more coherent product. I really believe that, and I wouldn't be into it if it weren't the case. Thank you, Seth. Uh, this has been What's Good Radio, again, with the Don of Rundle C Division, of Rundle <laughs> Garden C Division. I'm in B now. Another, you're in B? Oh, my fault. <laughs> I'm, I'm drowning in B. I was okay in C. Now I'm like trying to avoid relegation from B. But I'm worried. I'm worried because I was in, it was the rookie season. So the, the next six after the top four moved to C, I think. Uh -huh. And I got um, I got fifth. And I'm still a little worried seeing some of the stats <laughs> for people. Like, is C gonna just like kill me? 
because my defense isn't good. You got to work on the defense. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you, Seth Rosenthal, one of the founding members of Secret Base, the new Velvet Fog. Appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I don't want to, you can't reveal too much, but you said that you were working on something from the 80s. Is there a story in the far future that you would like to write that hasn't been um, pitched at all yet? I wouldn't say it hasn't been pitched at all, but I will put it out there. I, I'm not going to say too much about the substantial thing we're working on. That's hopefully for this summer. But I will say that the next big thing that I really want to do is the story of the Houston Comets. I think yes. That there's no, as far as I know, there's no 30 for 30. There's no like that. The, 30, the, the, the Houston Comets are the coolest sports thing ever. And they have a very tragic end, but like that's the best professional sports team ever. And they, and they sprung up, you know, in the, they, they were founded in such an interesting way. The team was built in, in such an interesting way. They went through so much. They won four fucking championships in a row. Like I, I, and then they were obviously completely left for dead. But anyway, that, that is a story that I desperately want to tell. And I don't know if I'm the person to do it, but that, that's my next big pitch. There's so many people who are on WNBA uh, Twitter who have been asking for this. Um, my my co-host yesterday, we just recorded our show yesterday. So it's gonna come out in a couple of days. We were like, yo, somebody bring back the comments, please. Because it's so it's, somehow misunderstood. You, They won four titles straight, four straight. I don't think anybody's done that since the Islanders. No, yeah, and, and the first four, like, <laughs> as, you know, everyone was an expansion team, but that was, that was how WNBA history started, was like, oh, no, we already have a dynasty. <laughs> yeah, no, it's incredible. It's incredible that they don't have a franchise, and it's incredible that, that story hasn't been told yet. So, yeah. excellent. Everybody, What's Good Radio listeners, look up, be on the lookout for that. Watch Secret Base. Follow everybody on there because they do fantastic work. And Seth, thank you once again for coming on. Uh, find him on Twitter. Seth, what is your Twitter handle? I don't have things up right now. My uh, it's just my name, Seth underscore Rosenthal. But also, like, you don't need to follow me on Twitter. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, people, be good and do great things. We'll see you then. The What's Good Radio theme was written and produced by Marcel Ayers. Find more of his music online at soundcloud.com slash C-E-L, Lucky Menace. Listen to every episode of What's Good Radio on anchor.fm slash what's good radio one.